Hey, welcome to the 115th episode of Two Writers Slingin' Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated scene writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to music critique and the self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode is the ultimate departure for me because it's a medium that both fascinates me and bewilders me. Clementine Von Radix is a six-time competitor at the National Poetry Slam, the author of multiple books of poetry, and a woman who truly grasps the power of words, the impact of hyper-specific references, the value of nuance. It's not journalism, but it's journalism second cousin on its mother's side. I love her work. I love this episode. And it's right now on Two Writers Singing Yang. All right, Clementine. So in this is the second time we are having a conversation because we did we did a very, I thought very uh, sort of enlightening podcast episode and then you it the, the audio uh, somehow did not work. And I have to say I'm sitting here I go to your Instagram feed and one of the things I'm looking at is a picture of your arm with a sprig of lavender tattooed onto your wrist. And it said you wrote when you really commit to an aesthetic and let your ex-girlfriend tattoo a sprig of lavender on your wrist. Um, (laughs) Why would you let your ex-girlfriend tattoo a sprig of uh, lavender on your wrist? How does that happen? (laughs) Um, So uh, it's actually a wild story. The first week I moved to Brooklyn, I was walking down the street and like looked up and someone was staring at me. And then I looked back at her and realized it was my high school girlfriend. And we live like two blocks apart from each other in Brooklyn and have like become very close friends. Um, But she's a professional illustrator who's interested in doing uh, or like transitioning to uh, hand done tattoos. And I'm very interested in getting tattoos done by hand. Uh, So she tattooed a sprig of lavender on me. Um, And it was just, became a very queer aesthetic because lavender historically is uh, a means for lesbians to flag each other. <laughs> so are you saying as a, uh, as a 47 year old suburban dad, mm-hmm. I, I made a mistake of going to my tattoo parlor last night and getting a sprig of lavender tattooed onto my wrist as well. Inspired by, you. I mean, I, you know, I think it probably looks great on you and <laughs> way to be Thank an you. ally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're from 3000 miles away. So the odds that you spot, your high school girlfriend walking down the street in Brooklyn in and of itself, kind of random, wouldn't you say? Extremely random. Um, Yeah, we're from, we're both from a very small town in Oregon and we hadn't spoken in six years. And so for the first, like two days after I moved to Brooklyn to, to see her um, just on the street was wild. It was one of those things where I was like, I think we have to be friends now. I think the universe is pushing us together at this point. All right. Now let me ask you this. So, you write a ton about relationships. Um, I don't know about pain of relationships, blah, blah, blah. Like your poetry is mm-hmm. sort of delves in these areas very deeply. You run into a, an ex-girlfriend from six years ago on a street in Brooklyn and wind up with a sprig of lavender tattooed to your wrist. Does that not inspire <laughs> you to write something about it? Or is that not crying for you to write something about it? I think it probably will end up in a book. I'm very interested in, in relationships. Um, as ways of talking about um, much bigger emotions. I think it's a really easy way to talk about like microcosms is to talk about like interpersonal relationships. 
Um, I think the thing I want to talk about with the tattoo experience, though, is the intimacy of like being held while a person um, hurts you in that way. Like it's That's a very slow and very painful process. And it was just very interesting as a metaphor with like a person you have a very storied history with for them to be like holding you um, very tenderly uh, while doing something that is uh, hurtful and permanent, but ultimately like very beautiful. Um, there's something in there, but I have, I'm obviously still kind of sketching it out. When people ask me like, what is, what's it like to write a book? I always use the comparison of when I was in college, I had a girlfriend who had really, really sharp nails. And I remember one day she gave me this back scratch and it was the mm -hmm. best and worst back scratch at the same time because her nails were really sharp. And at the end of the night, my back was just bloody from the sharpness of her nails, but it was the, <laughs> it was kind of a, a loving pain. And I always say that's right. like writing a book, you know, and there's something, you, there's something weird about the sort of juxtaposition of, of pain and, and pleasure at the same time. And, and I think people tend to, to glorify pain and I, I I'm less interested in that but I do think there is a really clear correlation between like effort and reward and pain is often just through simply something that you have to endure when something is painful or when something requires a lot of effort like the reward is that much sweeter I often think about writing a book in terms of like running a marathon or something like that like a physical undertaking mm -hmm. like the strain or the effort of it is very difficult. I just taught um, a workshop last week and kept trying to uh, frame these very like difficult prompts that I was giving people as like, I understand this isn't fun and I need you to think of this as like running uh, sprints or like strength training. Like you'll be stronger and like this muscle will be there for you next time you sit down to write. But like the process of learning it is not going to be fun. It's just going to feel like effort. That's another way I explain writing a book. Like I hate 80% of writing a book. I, it's, it's isolating and it's nightmarish and you're by yourself all the time and you're in your head and you're struggling mm -hmm. for words. And it's like, why do you do this? Why do you put yourself through it? Well, I'm not going to do it again. And then as soon as you're done, you want to do it again. Because <laughs> 20% Whatever it is, whether it's walking into a bookstore and seeing your book or having someone walk up to you and say, I really love that really meant something to me or whatever. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist without the 80%. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I think in addition, like not just the external validation, which is like wonderful. And I feel like a hard lesson for me post first book was the need, like realizing that like that part doesn't exist without the writing. Um, is that, which maybe makes no sense, but in that, like, it feels very hard to like switch back and forth between those worlds, especially after you've like kind of done the second, like good part. Um, you know, I, I, especially cause I do spoken words. So when I go out to promote a book, it's like, you know, 40 shows in front of like big groups of people. And it's like a real performance and to switch back and forth between that and sitting alone in my house for six weeks trying to get a draft out is like a real mind fuck for me. Um, yeah. I've been trying to focus on like the parts of writing that were really fun for me when I first started writing, like the joy of actually articulating something really specific in, you know, after countless attempts. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like for me, writing is so much about like trying to communicate something that I can't verbalize. Like it's about giving myself infinite numbers of chances to say something that I've kind of failed to be able to say in conversation. And I've been trying to reframe the frustrations around like not how truly daunting and Sisyphusian like finishing a book feels by really reveling in those moments where I, f- I do feel like I've said the thing I came here to say. It's challenging. It's like work for sure. Yeah. Yeah. People don't get it. People don't get it. I mean, yeah. you, people don't want to. And, and I understand it. Like my friend who works at Deutsche Bank doesn't want to hear me whine about having to write oh, I know. whatever a book about the Lakers <laughs> or they don't want to hear. Oh, are you OK writing your poetry? Like nobody wants to hear that shit. But yeah, I feel it. I mean, there's a quote from Dorothy Parker. I, I hate writing. I love having written that yeah. I think of all the time because it's just fucking torture. I just was having a conversation with my um, creative partner and we're doing a lot of workshops and we had this like long conversation with all these young writers about transitioning from like writing for passion to writing for money. <laughs> and a thing that I said and always say and stand by is that like, it really is just a matter of choice. If you want to be a professional writer, like my, a lot of my favorite writers don't write for a living and it really is a job. It really does. I don't necessarily know if I've written, if I write more when I'm writing full time, I think I just spend more time really agonizing over it. And also just running the business of being a writer of uh, trying to like keep the project of people buying my books afloat. I want to talk some of your work. So I may, uh, as I told you last time, you have made me a, you have made me a fan. You literally doing this podcast. I've become a Clementine fan. We, we discussed briefly sort of the complications of writing about people in your life and mm-hmm. you don't want to hurt the feelings of people in your lives, you know, but you are experiencing them on a pretty regular basis. And you wrote a thing, uh, a piece called a bird flu and you wrote, um, when my uncle died, we held a funeral for him. And four people came. He spent the last decade of his life drunk, living in a van in the Fred Meyer parking lot. But before that, he lived with my family. When I was little, he taught me how to read, how to make pancakes, that the birds in our neighborhood were doves, and how to kill them with a well-thrown rock. But with each passing year, he became more dead dove, more flightless thing, more ghost. Uh, and it goes on and on. It's freaking great. Um, I don't know. What's the story? Why'd you write it? That poem's very directly autobiographical that is like my father's only brother lived with us growing up um and it's interesting i have a little sister who remembers him very very differently um and i think that's because in the four years between when i started making permanent memories and when she did he really descended into um a person whose priorities were drinking and uh very little else drinking and getting money for drinking. Um, and it was just this very, I don't know. It, it was a, it's a very, um, important experience and formative thing for me growing up was how much I loved this person who became an entirely different person. I think a lot about him. I think because he always tried to, make sure that I still thought of him the way that I did when I was a little kid. Um, I think I was maybe one of the few people in his life that still thought of him as like a really remarkable man. Um, 
long after he had kind of descended into um, a really dark place. And so I just have a lot of love for this, this very complicated man. And he died a couple years ago and his death along with a couple other things really through my immediate family into um, a lot of chaos. And so a lot of that book kind of, I think, concentrates on, on that grief and on trying to love people fully and wholly, um, which means for me also acknowledging like the ways that they have hurt you. Um, and I think because he was already gone, I think because so many things he had done, um, it was just very easy to talk about his struggles in a very plain spoken way because towards the end of his life, he had also begun to really discuss them in the same way. But yeah, I don't know. It's to me that that poem was kind of that person's legacy in my life was this deeply loving force who was also kind of a lesson in like how many different people one person can be, you know? When you write something like that, is there any worry that someone, you know, Clementine, what the fuck? Why are you writing about Uncle So-and-so? He died. Like, why are you... Right. You know, does that, does that enter your head at all? Um, I do. In general, I, I, I don't write about people who've been good to me. I feel like in choosing to write um, and choosing to write about myself, I've consented to lead a public life. Um, but my parents did not. My sister did not. My loved ones did not. And I generally don't like to write things that paint people in an unflattering light. This poem, I think, doesn't. <laughs> um, I think this poem is, is a very generous interpretation of this man. You know, it does talk about his alcoholism, but it, it's also written from a place of very deep love. And I think, you know, his, my uncle, my grandmother saw it, his, my father saw it, his, his mother and his brother. And I think they both appreciated, um, acknowledging the complicated memory it's a complicated thing because um i've had millions of i mean not millions but many relatives mad at me over the years for things i've written because your best material is right in front of you often you know so it's yeah. like oh that's really good but uh my mom's not gonna love that but uh yeah. i don't know that's okay it's a toughie <laughs> i just always find yeah. that a very tough one it, it is it definitely yeah. i you know I'm a, I'm a word choice geek here you said he spent the last decade of his life drunk living in a van in the Fred Meyer parking lot. I had to Google Fred Meyer. I, I'm unfamiliar <laughs> with the Fred Meyer chain of, I mean, I kind of assumed uh, of uh, grocery stores. Why is it important or is it important to say, you know, living in a van in the Fred Meyer parking lot, as opposed to living in a van in a parking lot or a supermarket parking lot? Why does the specificity of Fred Meyer matter? I, I love that you brought that up because my editor and I did 10 rounds over this. I think it matters because I wanted the specificity of the image, even if it meant Googling it. I, grocery stores are such a great regionalism. They tell you mm -hmm. a lot. Totally. I don't know. I love reading books set in the South when people talk about like going to a Piggly Wiggly. Like I love it. Mm -hmm. I, I also love when people mention like their local gas station chain. It gives you a sense of place. It also gives you a sense of ownership of like declaring a place a landmark, even if it, because it is a landmark for you. And I think that lends gravity to setting. I've been thinking about this a lot now that I live in New York, um, where people do that all the time, um, because they assume that like even people who don't live in New York, uh, know where things are. Right. Uh, 
which is really like, I think just confidence because <laughs> it, I don't. And <laughs> as speaking as a person who just lived here, who just moved here, I don't. And I kind of love writers who apply that same gravity to their small town. I don't necessarily need to know, like as a reader, I don't necessarily need to know all of the, all of the details already. Um, I can pick it up through context or through the way that the speaker refers to the thing. And I just prefer it that way. I like, I like lending uh, a lot of gravity and legitimacy to, to very uh, small and individual stories. I always say like, I teach journalism and, and when, when I'm writing, I always want to know that it like, I need to go beyond that. It was a soda. I need to know yeah. that it was a diet Pepsi and I need to know that it was in a bottle, not a can. And I need to know if the bottle was plastic or glass and I need to know if it was half filled or not half filled. I need to know if it was open, if there was a lipstick stain on the, how important are the, are the details when you're writing in this genre? I think they're very important. I think they, I think they provide a sense of place. I think they tell you a lot about like who a person is. I really subscribe to the idea that there's a lot of humility in writing about the individual and writing about yourself as an individual and not trying to not presuming that you have any perspective other than your own when you're writing in first person, just really leaning into your own subjectivity. Um, and I think part of that is referencing really specific details of your life. And I think the images do build into kind of their own, Poetry. I mean, like speaking of, you know, in journalism, I think about that a lot in like, uh, music interviews, which I read a lot of or, um, different, um, profiles. Like I read a lot of profiles of people and that, that super, super specific imagery of like what they're eating or like how they move through their living room builds, um, an idea of who that person is for me so much more than their answer on what their latest project was. Like it right. matters much more to me, like how they talk to their assistant as they enter the room. Like all of those things really build a much clearer version of a human being to me. Yeah, that's a great point. If you, if you're reading a profile of like Will Smith and mm -hmm. the interviewer points out that he's chowing down on some cornflakes and the milk is dripping off his chin, that's right. the thing you're going to remember from that interview. Exactly. It's kind of weird. Word choice, word choice, word choice. Um, one of the, my favorite things that you wrote that I've read is, is called Patron Saint of Manic Depressives. You wrote for Vincent Van Gogh, Patron Saint of Psychotic Manic Depressives. Often I think of Vincent and the meat that once was his ear and how he gave it to a pretty girl that was not certain of his name and then spent the night alone trying not to bleed to death. And ever since my own diagnosis, some part of me is always alive. And inside that moment, I picture scared girl, the bleeding painter, the jagged flesh between them. And sometimes I am the girl. Sometimes I am the dripping blood. But most often, I'm the one offering up some unwanted mess of myself and calling it a gift. Um, I told you this before, and I mean it. Meat is the best word. It's the <laughs> best usage. If there were an Academy Award or whatever for best usage of the word meat, you win it right <laughs> there. I often think of Vincent and the meat that once was his ear. Meat to me, the word meat is Subway is closing in 10 minutes. And they yeah. have some kind of little nasty looking turkey and you decide you're really hungry. So you get the turkey sandwich and the guy behind the counter slaps down the four last pieces of 
you know, turkey, sliced turkey. And it just goes plop. And that's meat. Why would you call <laughs> Vincent Van Gogh's ear the, the meat that once was his ear? Like, why would you use that word? I use that word because, <laughs> um, I really, first of all, because that poem was written to be performed. And I think it's a very, uh, it is like a very kind of jarring, kind of gross word. And I perform and I'm, uh, like, I'm five two. I'm very small. Um, I have a very soft voice. I am very still when I perform. And I really liked the juxtaposition of me and my very soft, very like feminine voice saying meat about a person's body. I think that I, no, I, I think that that kind of carnage really created this uh beauty as the grotesque kind of juxtaposition that was really important to me as a framing to set up um a poem about uh to set up a poem about like how bipolar disorder is both um incredibly empowering and really dark that poem's really full of these really direct comparisons it also says um like in the like two verses down, it's to be both violence and victim, the knife and the flesh that welcomes it in. It's a lot of comparisons between kind of a a beautiful or an innocent thing and a very, very um, grotesque thing. And I like talking about um, a body part in, in the most, uh, in the most kind of gross way that I could to like lead into this very delicate poem. What is zero? I am chaos. I'm a barely hidden bar fight. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? <laughs> uh, it comes from using a lot of whiskey imagery in my poems, using a lot uh-huh. of bar imagery. Um, but I think I'm a person who values invulnerability. Like I don't, I really, really struggle to like let my walls down. It's like a problem. Um, but I also have, it's, I think directly because I have, um, I have this condition that makes me feel emotions incredibly intensely and that makes me very guarded about like who I let into that kind of emotional experience. And so to talk about being chaos or a barely hidden bar fight is about feeling like a very high functioning person or a person who can move through the world seemingly without like a lot going on, who often has a lot going on. You know, I think my, my emotional reactions are often so, so intense to to fairly minute things that it often does just feel like a, a a full out brawl over, you know, how upset I am about how dinner, you know, how I fucked up dinner, you know, I burned something and all of a sudden I'm like, well, I'm, I'm clearly truly unlovable. And, uh, I need to just really like roll in that emotion for 45 minutes. I both wanted to like share that reality without like fully uh, letting people into it or acknowledging that like not letting people into it is part of the struggle of it. Um, and that's where those images end up. Before we continue with two writers slinging yay, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my son Emmett and his friend Harrell. And in honor of my sponsor, 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, I thought it'd be cool to have you guys read some of my Amazon reviews just to show the people at 503 what value they're getting for this space. Emmett, you go first. Okay. I've read about one half of this book, and I do not expect that my finishing of it will change my low estimation of it. The writing is a little above good high school writing. The analysis is thin to the point of being non-existent. 
Uh, Ariel? Was this written by a high school student? I'm very surprised to get such a badly written book from Jeff Perlman. Emmett? Jeff Perlman epitomizes the liberal agenda and should just stop. Uh, Ariel? Jeff Perlman is a... I don't think I'm allowed to say that word out loud. Uh, yeah, let's end this. I'll just go on and say 503-sports.com is the absolute best place for sports merchandise and maybe stay away from Amazon, at least for a while. You sort of write about mental illness and mm-hmm. struggling with mental illness and, and at the same time, in a way, being driven by mental illness. What does that do to you as a writer? Is it the kind of thing like the, the almost like getting back to pleasure pain where you have this thing you have to deal with and it's really hard to deal with and at the same time it kind of fuels a lot of what you're writing about? Yeah, I really feel like, um, and I, I, I hesitate to say this because I don't, I don't want to like glorify um, mental illness, but I, I do feel like um, bipolar disorder is almost like living in a world, in a poem. Um, in a lot of ways to me, it feels like it makes the world more poetic because poetry to me, there's a, um, Ann Carson quote that if writing is a house, poetry is the person on fire running through the house. And poetry is about diving endlessly into very specific emotions. And poetry is about the regular world enhanced, you know, um, metaphors that take the sun and turn it into a different person's imagining of the sun, you know, um, Mm -hmm. that feels truer because the language is less exact and to have a mental illness that makes you occasionally see colors more vibrantly, see things that are not there, but are a manifestation of something going on in your head to see, um, to feel emotions very intensely. I do think those things um, certainly inform who I am as a writer um, and have built are kind of the basis of my artistic aesthetic. And in that way, I do think that uh, having a mental illness has like helped or shaped who I am as an artist. Um, That being said, until like, until I properly addressed um, mental illness, my mental illness and like sought, treatment for it um i i just couldn't write you know um it's like you literally were frozen from writing i couldn't finish anything i couldn't really sit down to write when i'm i can't when i'm not doing well um when i'm depressed i get so um paralyzed by um negative emotions that i can't finish and when i'm um Manic, I don't have the ability to focus and refine. I really do need, you know, it's not as though leaning into the instability of bipolar disorder makes me a better writer. Like health and treatment made me a person who was able to be a writer. Um, I think that, but part of that was in therapy, getting the tools to reframe my mental illness as something that does strengthen me and being able to think of the um, ways that it affects my thinking that can heighten my writing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. It totally does. (laughs) It does. But I just think it's a fascinating thing because um, I've interviewed and known many sort of writers who who struggle with mental illness and it's almost like uh, I fucking hate this, but I also kind of need it. Yeah. And, And the weirdness of that. Yeah. You know, I don't know. 
if I need it, I, I certainly do think that it informs who I am and I'm not, it's almost not useful to me to think about whether or not I need it or to think about whether or not I'm grateful for it. It feels like thinking about whether or not I'm grateful for having brown hair, you know, like it just kind of, it's not useful. It's a fact about me and it feels more useful to focus on how I can best navigate the world with that rather than to philosophize on who I would be without it. Cause I'll never know who I'd be without it. Um, right. That's not helpful information to me, but thinking about the ways that it's informed who I am thinking about the ways that I can better utilize it to communicate to others and to be a good writer in person. Um, that is a really interesting question to me. And that's something that uh, I, I engage with a lot. I'm going to throw a total curveball at you. I'm going to throw Let's something at you. We, we did not. Okay. Today is my <laughs> daughter's 16th birthday and mm. it's bra- It's, it's joyful and heartbreaking at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. Like a lot, two nights ago, I could not, I was up at three 30 in the morning looking through old pictures of her and sort of her <laughs> on my shoulders and, and her in princess dresses, you know, and, and even now I, it, it just, it hurts me. Like it's a real painful hurt. And mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm happy because I'm very proud of her and I see her and I love who she is and it brings me great joy. But it's also like this profound, profound sadness, right? Mm-hmm. I'm you, right? <laughs> I decide I'm going to mm-hmm. write about this. This is what I'm going to write about. What do you do? What's your process? <laughs> uh, I would, I mean, I would focus on those two emotions and try and figure out um, two things like, what specific story I'm going to use as a framing for those emotions. Um, you know, are, are you going to talk about like watching her cut a birthday cake when she was six and then watching her cut a birthday cake when she's 16? Or are you going to talk about like, I, I think there's a lot of ways to interesting to contrast that. I, my second thing was going to say, what would the form of the poem be? But clearly I, th- uh, now that I'm talking about it, even for a second, I would definitely contrast like her as a child versus her now. Um, you know, her in princess dresses, her getting ready for prom, her doing this, her doing that. The interesting thing about it is there's so much love in that feeling, right? There's so much love in both of those directions. And it's about, about figuring out how to express that in a way that like moves time forward unless you don't want to unless what the poem is about is about moving it backwards but i would start there i don't know i think you should write this poem are you walking along and an idea pops in your head and you think i'm gonna write about that and you rush out to get your notebook like what do you know you do it in blue nights joan didion talks about her writing process when her daughter was a child um and how she would just try and be writing to get a draft out um especially because time was so limited Um, she had a nine-year-old or whatever, uh, however old her daughter was, but, um, but trying to write out a draft. And then when she couldn't think of a word or couldn't think of an image, she just put brackets and come back to it. And for me, it's a lot of that the past couple of years. I think now that it's like, I, I, I know more or less how to write. Um, it's a lot of building a framework. And then once I have the time going back and filling in the gaps. Uh, occasionally, I, especially if I'm like deep in the editing process, which I kind of am right now on a couple of poems, um, 
will just be called away before I'm ready to like leave that problem behind. And those are maybe when the big moments of inspiration still hit or when I'm like waiting for the subway or standing in line somewhere, um, still thinking about the problem I like didn't want to walk away from my desk for. Um, and something will occur to me that solves it. And those are like the frantic, frantic, uh, does anyone have a pen kind of moments for me? Do you need affirmation of others to feel good about a poem? No, I don't. Uh, I don't think I have good taste in my own poetry consistently. I'm, I'm genuinely uh, consistently, um, the poems that I think will do exceptionally well and poems that I think I writ I wrote for the views of other people, like for the eyes of other people will just tank. Um, and then other poems that I don't, that I really feel like I wrote for me will, um, do incredibly well but that's not the rule either there's also poems you know that i i just generally yeah the poems that have ended up getting really successful have surprised me um the poem mouthful of forevers which is the title poem for my first book and um far and above my most popular poem it's um really taken on a life of its own and i did not think that that poem was going to be remarkable you know i never like i never posted that poem online i never um really promoted that poem at all it was just in the middle of my first chapbook and other people started posting it online and it got a lot of attention all right so mouthful forever i am not the first person you loved you are not the first person i've looked at with a mouthful of forevers and we have both known loss like the sharp edge of a knife, both lived so long with lips more scar tissue than skin that love arrived unnoticed in the middle of the night. Love came when we had given up on asking it to come. That has to be part of the miracle. And this, this is how we heal. You kiss me like forgiveness. I will hold you like your hope. Our arms will bandage. We'll press promises between us like flowers in the pages of a book. I will write sonnets to the sweat on your skin. I mean, how could you not think this was good? Like, what? May, I mean, it's fucking beautiful. Like, what would make you think, eh? Like, have you figured out what does it for people? Um, maybe that doesn't do it for yourself. Like, what drew people to that poem that now you're like, oh, I get it. Or maybe you don't get it. <laughs> I think the reason that I didn't take that poem seriously was that it had taken me so long to get the language right. Mm-hmm. And I still wasn't entirely certain I had gotten it right. I still thought it was a little bit too plain spoken. Um, and I think there's just a very, very, very fine line between work that is plain spoken, um, in a way you can ignore and work that is, uh, simple and elegant and, um, poignant in its plain spokenness. Um, and I have trouble, uh, distinguishing when I'm doing which of those two things. Um, with Mouthful of Forevers, the thing is, I wrote that poem about the person I was dating at the time who is now, um, like the greatest. We broke up like six months after that poem and, but she's become the most supportive and long-term friendship I've ever had. And so it makes a lot of sense to me that this poem, which was really my first attempt to write about her and what it was like to be uh what it was like to to meet her and to 
to start my relationship with her. It makes sense that that's a poem that resonates with people. Um, but at the time, I think I was so focused on trying to, on what it was I was trying to say. And so kind of self-critical and aware of like the, um, the ways I, the things I had kind of not quite said the way I wanted to, that I, Uh I didn't, I didn't think that people would, uh, would pick up what I was putting down, but they did. You have, we've both known loss, like the sharp edges of a knife. And then you have, we've both lived with lips, more scar tissue than skin. And, um, Mm -hmm. like the sharp edge of a knife is not a, it's not an incredibly unique, you know, like people have said, right. uh, sharp like a knife or sharp. And then you come with like, bam, like we've lived with lips, more scar tissue than skin, which I've never heard anyone say in my life. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know when you, when you're writing and you're like, all right, we've both known loss, like, like, uh, like, 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 all right, I guess the sharp edge of a knife. Um, mm-hmm. do you ever think to yourself, I don't know, that's kind of been used or do you think to yourself, no, that's okay because it's such a familiar imagery that it actually works here. I'm a big fan of cliches in general. Um, I, um, like, I think pretty much every, I write almost every poem I have mentions like rivers or knives or, uh, uh, like whiskey or the moon, um, which are just very, like very small town, Oregon aesthetic. Uh (laughs) Um, and you just kind of have to like lean into that, I think. Um, and there's times when it gets repetitive and then you can have that as its own problem. But a thing I kind of like with working with the same metaphors is a lot of times things like that, the sharp edge of a knife and discard to shoot and skin happen really gradually without my noticing over the course of several drafts. Um, you end up having a lot of really kind of cool and playful things like that of different ways you can use the same image over and over and over um, that end up seeming really intentional when in fact they're um, just instinct uh, that is being refined over the course of uh, over the course of rereading it several times. Um, that's kind of how those things end up in my work is, is just kind of allowing myself to write the same image Um from a lot of different perspectives. Um, I also, uh, I learned this phrase from Megan Valley and she learned it from somewhere else. So I'm not giving credit to the original person, but I learned from, um, the poet Megan Valley, this rule, um, of keeping your poetry on Mars, uh, which is basically a, a way to remember that you can set a poem anywhere. You can set a poem on Mars, but if, the poetry, if the poem is set on Mars, make sure that all the images are Martian. Um, and so you can set a poem anywhere. You can use any kind of imagery, but a way to keep a poet, a poem cohesive is to make sure all of that imagery is in conversation with each other. So if you write about knives, also writing about scar tissue is that kind of idea. I love the phrase. Um, you said it in all your. Cr- this is going to sound dumb. You're going to be like, who gives a shit? But like in all your cracked perfection, like cracked yeah. perfection is great. That's great. Thank you. That's fucking great. <laughs> I love stuff like that. That's really good. You're a, uh, you're a six, six time competitor at the national poetry slam. And, <laughs> um, you're very dramatic and, and in the best possible way, like a really sort of, 
you know, I watch your, your readings online and they're just really gripping and dramatic and cool. And, mm-hmm. um, but here we are talking on the phone and you're, you're kind of soft spoken and you're sort of, you know, I don't know. And, you know, like, mm-hmm. is, is it, is it a weird sort of life juxtaposition to go from sitting in an apartment or whatever, writing on a, on a pad to standing in front of a, you know, whatever number of people reading this sort of thing in this very public way? Is that weird? Not anymore. Um, but it was, I think a thing I have learned over the course of now performing for seven years is that really anyone can be a good performer, but the trick is to just not try and be um, a version of yourself that you're not on stage. I think people tried to teach me how to be a good performer when I first entered slam, like different coaches or people who'd found a lot of success um, tried to teach me um, to be big and to be very loud and to be very animated. Um, And I was doing terribly in slam when I followed that advice, Um, which was very good advice for them. But what worked for me was to lean into, um, was to lean into um, my own strengths. I think what makes someone a commanding performer is just someone who you're interested in listening to. And when I go through my everyday life, I don't attract attention to myself. I don't um, insist. I don't convince people to listen to me by being very um, boisterous or charming. Like I'm not, um, I'm not interested in being like the brightest person in the room or the loudest or the person in the center. Um, I tend to attract attention to me by being very, quiet by waiting until I have something to say and by being um, being soft-spoken and waiting for people to train their eyes on me. And there's a lot of power in that, actually, in being very still and confident and simply waiting for people and waiting for people to listen to you and speaking quietly so that they're forced to lean in. Um, and I think once I started using those tools that make sense for me socially, um, also on stage. And once I started thinking of the audience as kind of a single person I was in conversation with, uh, that really changed my performance style dramatically. And it was only once I started doing that, that I started, um, getting any success in slam at all. Let me say a last thing. Do, um, yeah. Do people in your shoes, do poets have to worry about coming off as self-indulgent? Like, is that a concern mm. at all? Like, someone's going to be like, ugh, we get it. You're sad. We get it. Like, <laughs> okay. You know, or whatever emotion. Like, do you, is that a concern? Or do you ever, are you ever listening to other poets and thinking kind of in your head, God, that's a little self-indulgent or no? Um, no, I'm, well, I mean, I'm struggling with the question. I think generally when I feel like a poet is being, when I, when I catch myself thinking a poet is being self-indulgent, I tend to, my next thought is no, they're not being self-indulgent. It's just that the writing is not strong enough for me to be let into their head. You know, I'm interested in, in any poem or emotion, big or small 
Um, I think the times when it doesn't resonate with me is when there is some kind of problem with the writing that is making it very difficult to engage with. Um, that's generally the problem. There's obviously a couple exceptions of people, uh, expressing a point of view that is objectively um, harmful or, uh-huh. or so, you know, I can think of a couple um, breakup poems from someone's point of view um, where even in just describing the actions or how they're feeling about it, you're like, I'm very curious what the other party in this situation feels because I think I'm on their side. Um, <laughs> right. You know, there's, there's been those instances, but generally, no, I think it's kind of a failure of, um, the writing more than than a problem with the feelings someone is feeling right yeah interesting yeah well listen i uh i appreciate you doing this so much seriously i've become a huge admirer of your work um and uh you. you know so if if nothing else you've gained a poetry fan <laughs> i really appreciate it i want to thank today's guest clementine von radix for joining me on two writers slinging yang you can follow Clementine on Twitter at ClementineVR and visit her website at ClementineVonRadixPoet.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.